begin, let us be still and quiet together as we gather to think about Christianity, race, and mass incarceration, justice, <clears throat> and the geography of particular bodies in space. Let us be mindful of the native people who were on this soil before us. If you're willing, close your eyes. Think of an elder who sustained you with love and quietly invite their wisdom into our collective work. Because this struggle for justice is protracted indeed, and we are gonna need all the wisdom we can possibly hold. Let us dedicate our presence today to someone who does not have the kind of access we do, to such an abundance of resources and vibrant community as this. Thank you. My name is Kaya Stern, and I'm honored to welcome you on behalf of Charles Ogletree, Tamiko Brown, Nagin, David Harris, and the staff at the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at Harvard Law School, where we are determined to make community justice the bedrock of public policy making. Thank you to the HDS faculty for providing the grant to support this conference, the Religions and the Practice of Peace Initiative at HDS for co-sponsoring, and the HDS student groups for their vital support. Low-income student advocates, the Prison Education Project, and Harambe Students of African Descent. And let us give a round of applause to Michelle Sanchez, Matthew Potts, and the people on the ground who have made it possible for us to be here today. As we transition to the first panel, Religion and the Historical Roots of U.S. Incarceration, I ask you to remember a Palestinian Jewish girl who finds herself pregnant with Yeshua bin Yusuf, otherwise known as Jesus of Nazareth. Consider what it means to worship a God who was executed by an empire, naked as a common criminal, and take hold of the scriptural mandate to remember those who are in prison as if you were there yourself, and those who are being tortured as if you yourself are being tortured. Let us now turn our attention to Nicole Powell, a student activist and 21st century drum major for justice here at Harvard Divinity School. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Stern. Um, so for folks, community members, students, faculty, and staff who are interested in issues of prison reform, a group of students are part of an organization called Prison Education Project. 
Um, we meet every Thursday at 6 p.m. in Rock Hall, which is the building directly across the street from this building. Um, and we're having orientation next Thursday, October 26th at 6 p.m. for folks who are interested in consistent visitation and getting paired with a student at Norfolk County Prison. Um, so thank you all for coming and I look forward to the rest of this conference. Thanks. Hi and welcome, my name is Michelle Sanchez um, and I'm here to introduce our first panel this morning which is looking at religion and the historical roots of U.S. incarceration. Our lead speaker will be Professor Jennifer Graber, who is coming to us from the University of Texas at Austin, where she is Associate Professor of Religious Studies. She earned her PhD at Duke University. Professor Graber works on religion and violence and interreligious encounters in American prisons and on the American frontier. Her first book, The Furnace of Affliction, Prisons, and Religion in, the Antebe in Antebellum America, explores the intersection of church and state during the founding of the nation's first prisons. Her latest book, The Gods of Indian Country, Religion and the Struggle for the American West, will be published by Oxford University Press and will appear in the spring of 2018. It considers religious transformations among the Kiowa Indians and Anglo-Americans during their conflict over Indian territory, or what is now known as Oklahoma. I think Professor Graber might win the award for longest distance traveled, and for that and for her presence, we are grateful. So we're hoping in general to keep this conference collaborative and conversational in tone. And to help to set that tone, we've got two respondents for each paper. And we've also asked the respondents to not only engage Professor Graber's work, but also to take some time to talk about their own work in the area and give us all a sense for the conversations as they are in this field. And ultimately to invite all of us into that larger conversation. We all know, if you've been to an academic conference, that they can often feel forbidding to anyone who doesn't work in the specific discipline being talked about. So we will ask you in the audience to help us out by not being shy when it comes to asking wide-ranging questions. So to start our conversation off, the respondents on the first panel will be professors Heather Curtis and Amy Ray Howe. Heather Curtis teaches nearby at Tufts University, and we're delighted that we found an opportunity to bring her back over here on the side of town. Mm -hmm. Heather earned her doctorate here at Harvard in the history of Christianity and American religion. She is author of Faith in the Great Physician, Suffering and Divine Healing in American Culture, 1860 to 1900 which came from Johns Hopkins University Press in 2007 and was awarded the Frank S. and Elizabeth D. Brewer Prize from the American Society of Church History for the best first book in the history of Christianity. Her current research project is called Holy Humanitarians, American Evangelicals and Global Aid, and it will be published again this spring, 2018, with Harvard University Press. It examines the role of evangelical missionaries and popular religious media played in the extension of U played in the extension of U.S. aid abroad from the late 19th to the mid-20th century. Amy Ray Howe is a visiting professor of religious studies at Brown University, where she teaches courses in the program on religion and critical thought. She recently completed her PhD dissertation, which was called Right Feelings on Sentimentality, Philosophy, and Religion in Harriet Beecher Stowe here at Harvard in the Graduate Study of Arts and Sciences Committee on the Study of Religion. Her scholarship explores articulations of liberal benevolence in Western philosophical, theological, historical, and literary traditions through the critical theories of race, gender, and sexuality. So I'll invite Professor Curtis and Professor Howe to go ahead and 
offer their remarks at the conclusion of Professor Graber's talk. Please join me in welcoming them. Good morning. I want to express my thanks to Dr. Sanchez and Potts. Um, this really is, for me, a kind of dream conference because um, it's about one of the issues I care about most uh, that has really driven my academic career and has really traveled with me most of my life. Um, and I, it's so rare to have a conference that brings together scholars and activists, so it's just a real joy. Um, so thank you for your excellent idea. So glad to be a part of it. <clears throat> America's first experiments with incarceration, starting in the 1790s and extending into the 1830s and 40s, corresponded with what has been called the age of benevolence. The leading citizens who built and ministered within prisons in New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and other states engaged in a host of reforming activities, creating what scholars have called the benevolent empire. They started Sunday schools, served as agents for the American Bible Society, promoted colonization for African Americans, and organized campaigns for the relief of the poor. My own work has focused on their involvement in the nation's first prisons, sites they lobbied for, designed, and sometimes administered with the goal of reforming inmates through a highly mediated period of incarceration. The Christians that populated the benevolent empire were busy people. They per performed a remarkable amount of public service to address the great need they saw around them. Literary scholar Susan Ryan has called us to pay careful attention to the need benevolent reformers addressed. In the grammar of good intentions, she argues that benevolence proved to be a site in which elite Americans worked out civic as well as racial identities. Donors, or givers, were true citizens in their ability to sustain themselves and also provide for others. Recipients, on the other hand, revealed their inability to make it in the geographically and economically expanding new nation. They were people in need. Ryan goes on to show how benevolent reformers came to see need not just in individuals they assisted, but in, in entire groups of people. According to them, she writes, quote, the categories of blackness, Indianness, and Irishness came to signify need itself. And here's an image from the cover of her book. In this way, these elite Americans raced need, ascribing essential difference to the populations whose situations they sought to relieve. The result was an enduring distance. Black need and Indian need made them different from self-sufficient white Americans. But this ascribed need also resulted in enduring ties. Leading white Americans felt duty-bound to address the need exhibited in racial others. While Ryan didn't address the prisons or punishment directly, I think her analysis of how need became raced can help us understand the connections between Christianity, race, and mass incarceration. I want to use her work as a starting point to consider one 19th century prison, Fort Marion, a military prison in St. Augustine, Florida. I want to explore how this prison and the disciplinary institutions later modeled on it was created in direct response to presumed and raced need. I also want to consider how Christian reformers obscured and concealed the racialized nature of Fort Marion 
and how, in that avoidance, they came to sanctify mass incarceration for racial minorities. Let me start with two American Indian men who served time in this prison, Whitehorse and Zotam. They were Kiowa Indians. Whitehorse was born in 1847, a time when his people still lived freely on the southern part of the Great Plains. They had political alliances with the Comanches, Cheyenne, and Arapaho. They prospered and boasted some of the largest horse herds on the Great Plains. Kiowas raided for plunder south into Texas and all the way into central Mexico, west into New Mexico and Colorado. They played a key role in Indian trade networks that stretched across the vast middle of the United States. Zotam was born a few years later, in 1853. Kiowas were still flourishing then, but they were on the brink of incredible change. That year, Kiowa leaders signed a treaty with American officials. The treaty allowed American traders and explorers to pass through Kiowa lands. It called on Kiowas to curtail their raids into Texas and Mexico. And in one of the treaty's final provisions, Kiowas agreed to the possibility of a future establishment of a reservation. And in 1868, that reservation came to be. So this map shows the lands that they had formulate, circulated through, uh, and the small black area is the reservation created in 1868. Kiowas were among many native nations up and down the plains who ceded lands in return for peace, cash annuities, and supplies for decades to come. While Kiowas and other Indian people understood these treaties as a loss, they also hoped to continue their way of life on reservation lands, which, while reduced, might still be able to sustain their traditions of hunting, trading, and life as independent peoples. But Americans signed these treaties with a different intent. And while I could spend time talking about their desire for Indian lands, I focus here on their ideas about Native people and their need. By 1868, American Protestant reformers had firm ideas about who Indians were and what they needed. Native peoples lived nomadically. Their food came from hunting and not the more dependable realm of farming. Their clothes lacked modesty. Their men were indolent. Their women captured in drudgery. Their children wild. And their heathen religion beyond the pale. Their need was immense. It was material and spiritual. As Ryan has observed, being Kiowa or a member of any Plains Indian people was to signify need. In the mid-1870s, Whitehorse and Zotam got caught up in this cycle of racialized need and benevolent reformers' effort to address it. To be sure, they were already living in it to some degree. Since 1868, they had been living on this reservation. They interacted with an administrator who not only represented the federal government, but also the Society of Friends, or Quakers. This agent warned them to stay inside reservation boundaries and stop following the buffalo herds. He encouraged them to farm and build wooden houses. He started a school with a Quaker teacher. He brought in a doctor and told Kiowas to avoid their traditional healers. He organized meetings for Christian worship on Sundays. These were the elements of the white man's road. Tensions between Kiowas, their allies, and the Americans grew. And in 1874, some of these Indian men decided to take arms and push the Americans out of their lands for good. Whitehorse and Zotam joined them. After months of fighting, the US Army suppressed the pan-Indian effort and arrested the native people involved. They decided that at least some of them must face punishment. 
And like other stories of Indian incarceration after armed uprisings, Zotam and Whitehorse were among 72 Plains Indian prisoners of war transported across the country to Florida to Fort Marion. This prison, the practices inside it and the rhetoric about it displayed the awesome power white elites had in naming Indian need and articulating its particular correction. So I wanna tell you about this prison, who ran it and who celebrated it. And at the end, I'll tell you what happened to Whitehorse and Zotam. Captain Richard Henry Pratt, a veteran of both the Civil War and some of the Indian Wars, took charge of these Plains Indian prisoners headed for Fort Marion. He accompanied the men on a trip to the fort and once there, Pratt decided to run his prison a little bit differently. In the past, Indian incarceration simply detained prisoners, usually until they could be transported by force to a new region or until some sort of physical punishment could be exacted. Pratt, like Protestant reformers involved in the nation's first prisons, decided to design incarceration at Fort Marion so as to prompt cultural transformation in his charges. He would require the Indian inmates to undergo cultural transformation that had been sought after but unrealized on the reservations. It started on the day of arrival. Pratt directed guards to remove the Indian men's traditional clothes and replace them with military-style uniforms. He also required haircuts. Pratt directed the Indian men to perform daily marching drills similar to those performed in military training. Life at Fort Marion also included classes, chapel, periods of labor, and outings into the community. Local women taught the native prisoners to read and write. Pratt preached in chapel. The Indian men worked a variety of odd jobs for the people of St. Augustine, carrying their luggage, picking oranges, and digging wells. American tourists traveling to St. Augustine for the mild weather also visited the prison. They had only praise for what they saw inside, and their praise reflected the rhetoric of racialized need developed decades earlier. Lizzie Champney, a travel writer and a visitor to Fort Marion, described the Indian men this way, as, quote, the most bloodthirsty of their race, savage in dress, in behavior, and in instinct. Episcopal Bishop Henry Whipple called the inmates, quote, sullen, revengeful, and full of hate. The famous Harriet Beecher Stowe also visited and told her readers in an uh, uh, evangelical newspaper that the Indian men had been sent to Fort Marion for being, quote, the wildest, most dangerous, most untamable of tribes. According to these prominent writers, who were also prominent Christian reformers, the Indian men were incapable of peaceful living. Their need was immense. But then they came to Fort Marion, where something incredible happened. Captain Pratt accomplished a tremendous transformation. Lizzie Champney observed that the Indian men sang hymns, said the Lord's Prayer, and practiced temperance. She delighted that noble Christian ladies worked diligently to educate them. Harriet Beecher Stowe marveled that the inmates were no longer savages. The men wore uniforms, kept their barracks clean, attended prayer meetings, and earned money by working. Stowe claimed the Indian men had, quote, use of a new set of faculties. You might have noticed when I quoted these reformers that I never used the word prison or prisoners. That's because they didn't use those words. These and other benevolent reformers extolled Captain Pratt's experiment at Fort Marion 
and also avoided any mention of the site as a prison and its occupants as residing there against their will. Take, for example, a conversation recorded at a Quaker meeting on Indian affairs. The committee praised the good reports coming out of Fort Marion. They were pleased to hear that the Indian men had two hours of classes every day, that they learned about the Bible and were now capable of manual labor. Unlike many other writings on Fort Marion, the men in this meeting allowed that it was a situation of, quote, confinement, but they insisted, quote, there is little to no suffering. There was one person, at least, who called Fort Marion what it was, a military prison. And that person was Richard Henry Pratt. Although Pratt would go on to have relationships with some of the most prominent Christian reformers in the country, he was a military man at heart. And because he worked in the army, where some of his colleagues were actually calling for the extermination of native people, Pratt had no need to avoid reference to the role force and coercion played in his prison experiment. He acknowledged it during the time he ran Fort Marion and later when he reflected back on it. Coercion was a part of daily life at Fort Marion. Recall that Pratt decided to require the inmates' cultural transformation, and he used force to make it happen. It started with the clothes. When guards distributed military uniforms, the Indian men apparently took some liberties with them. They tried to alter them. They cut up the pants in order to create plain-style leggings, and Pratt had none of it. He recalled the incident in his memoir, and he wrote that the Indian men who tried to make leggings received, quote, immediate correction. Pratt had one of his most dramatic challenges from Whitehorse, one of the Kiowa prisoners I mentioned earlier. Whitehorse, along with a few other Kiowa men, planned an escape. The plot included a request to leave the prison in order to pray on a nearby hillside. But Pratt heard rumors something was up and confronted the Kiowa prisoners who admitted the plot, including their vow to die rather than stay in prison. Pratt sent officers with bayonets to get Whitehorse. He then chained Whitehorse inside a guardhouse and drugged him. The other prisoners initially thought that Pratt had killed him. While Whitehorse eventually woke up from the drugs, he was shackled and confined for more than a month, and no one else tried to escape from Fort Marion. Pratt openly reported on the disciplinary issues he faced and clearly stated that force was necessary to address the particular need of Indians in their savage state. In an article he published years later, Pratt affirmed that wild Indians needed, quote, preliminary training before they could be passed, quote, into the mild hands of a missionary teacher. Routine teaching, he continued, quote, did not do the regenerative work for these once fierce savages. It was the influence of a clear-headed, strong man with power at his back and Christian sympathy in his heart, end quote. Here, Pratt named it. Savage Indians needed preliminary training, a strong man in a secure environment to use his power. Indians needed prison. Only then could missionaries bring them to the gospel and Anglo-American civilization. What's amazing to me is that even as Pratt named Indians' particular need, even as he said the savage race required coercive handling, Christian boosters of Fort Marion failed to register that aspect of his claim. Indeed, even as Quakers quoted Pratt's words about savages in need of preliminary training, they quoted that speech in their newspaper. 
They concluded that Pratt's work among the Indians was, quote, a labor of love, and nothing short of the mighty transforming power of God could have brought about so great a change. Other benevolent reformers were equally generous with their praise. A New York reformer referred to the Indian men as Pratt's flock and described them as prodigal sons who had been found. Bishop Whipple told his readers that even these, quote, savage men can be reached by discipline, kindness, and Christian teaching. Reflecting on the transformation wrought at Fort Marion, Whipple concluded that Pratt had provided the Indian men, quote, in the best sense, a Christian school. And when Pratt decided to follow up his Fort Marion experiment with an Indian boarding school, organized along the same principles, these Protestant reformers cheered him on. In 1879, Pratt opened the first off-reservation boarding school, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, a boarding school for native children and youth following the exact same program as Fort Marion. As with Fort Marion, Pratt required cultural transformation, American clothes, haircuts, labor, English speaking only, and when children resisted this regime, they faced corporal punishment. That's a hard picture. I think Ryan's argument about racialized need is helpful for understanding what happened as benevolent reformers praised not only Pratt's prison at Fort Marion, but also what came after it, schools like Carlisle. Ryan showed how antebellum reformers came to view certain racial and ethnic groups as typifying need. This construction of need tied reformers to these particular populations but also organized unequal power relationships and authorized coercive interventions. Pratt openly named the raced form of need that he and others associated with American Indians. Left to their own devices on the plains, they would carry on their doomed way of life, according to this line of thought. Pratt was forthright about what sort of response this need required. It required force, coercion, and a lack of freedom. Protestant reformers, on the other hand, accepted the circumstances and power relationships that Pratt described, but never acknowledged them. Remember the Quaker committee members who insisted that no suffering occurred at Fort Marion. Rather than on dwelling on how ideas of need shaped power relationships, they instead emphasized need as the basis for their sentimental bonds with Native people. They extolled, quote, the noble Christian ladies who taught classes to Indian men. They referred to Pratt as a shepherd with a flock. They elided the power Pratt associated with a strong man uh, into, quote, the mighty transforming power of God. In doing so, Pratt's prison became an ordinary classroom. A warden became a doting father. And officials who threatened with weapons and punished with drugs and solitary confinement somehow became associated with the work of the Lord. Pratt claimed that Indians needed prison. Reformers accepted his claim, avoided discussion of prisons dehumanizing aspects, and then asserted that Fort Marion was God's way of working with needy Americans. <laughs> Understanding how need came to be raced, how force was used to address that need, and how Christian benevolent reformers tiptoed around the realities of coercion can help us understand what's happening in prisons today. As work by Winnie Sullivan and Tanya Erzin have shown, the dominant model for Christian interactions with incarcerated people is conservative Protestant faith-based ministries. Um, Erzin calls them FBMs for short. 
I think it's no stretch to say, after working in prison ministries myself and reading work by Sullivan, Erzin, and others, that FBMs use similar language about incarcerated people and what they need. There's a narrative about prisoners who are disproportionately black and brown and their sorry state prior to their involvement in faith-based ministries. There's a focus on all the things FBMs make available, counseling, education, support, uh, connection. There's praise for prison staff who accommodate FBM programs, and transformed lives are attributed to God's power realized through these programs. Prison is just, again, another site for God's amazing work. We're less likely to see a statement like Pratt's to describe FBMs at work today. Folks don't say these ministries are possible because inmates don't have freedom, that they are built on a bedrock of strip searches, solitary, plea bargains, and sexual violence, that these ministries work within a system that still affirms black and brown people, quote, need prison and its mechanisms of coercion. I want to end by coming back to Whitehorse and Zotom, who experienced a world in which they were considered to have particular needs a world in which they underwent Pratt's, quote, preliminary training. I want to show you their responses as a way to enter their world, but also as a reminder that people caught up in racialized renderings of their need, people caught up in systems of preliminary training, that they have something else to say about who they are and what prison is. As I mentioned earlier, Whitehorse and Zotam were born into the Kiowa Nation at a time of its flourishing. They were raised among men who displayed their accomplishments. They depicted battles painted on teepee covers. They adorned their bodies with colors, objects, and weapons given to them in dreams and in supernatural encounters. And when these men were confined in Fort Marion, they used the materials around them, paper and pencils, to recall their lives in a state of freedom. Whitehorse, for example, drew pictures of himself as a warrior and a raider you can see the male figure here with a little white horse above. That's called a name glyph. So we know who's the subject of the drawing. In his drawings, Whitehorse depicted himself as capturing many ponies. Or here, as the owner of a shield, which means he has been imbued with sacred power through a supernatural experience. Or here, as a man leading other men out on an expedition or here as a man among other leaders giving a speech. Zotam, too, represented powerful Kiowa men in images of hunting, diplomacy, and war. Here, he drew himself engaged in a meeting with an American army official during important negotiations that happened in 1871 prior to his incarceration. His drawings also spoke to the pain of separation from family. He drew an image of himself and his wife, who he had married just a few years before the war that resulted in his incarceration. Unlike Whitehorse, Zotam also drew life in Fort Marion. The contrast of his life in freedom and life in prison could not be greater. He drew Indian prisoners being forced to drill. And note in the upper right-hand uh, drawing, the officers there are carrying swords. Here, he shows a local woman teaching language classes. And here, he depicts Pratt preaching to inmates gathered for chapel. 
I'm struck by Zotam's rendering of confined bodies. He drew the reality Pratt described, cultural transformation through preliminary training. He drew the coercion and threat that enforced the process. His drawings show us that Bishop Whipple and the other Protestant reformers were wrong. Fort Marion was not just a Christian school. These were not just meetings for prayer. By racializing need and obscuring the workings of power, benevolent reformers made people for some people necessary, if not inevitable, and they gave it the Christian God's sanction. Thank you. So again, I want to begin by thanking Michelle Sanchez and Matthew Potts for inviting me to participate in this conference and for all those who helped to make these events happen. I'm also grateful to Jennifer Graber for opening up our conversation about religion and the historical roots of mass incarceration in the United States. So during this session, we have the opportunity to think together about how history can help us move forward the goal of the conference, which is the critical study of carceral punishment as it relates to questions of Christian thought and practice. To explore in this session how understanding the past can help us provide, provoke awareness and activism around incarceration in the contemporary United States. So Jennifer's presentation raised two issues that I think can provide especially fruitful starting points for furthering these goals of advancing analysis, awareness, and activism. The first is the logic of Christian benevolence, particularly as it applied to the project of administering prisons and disciplinary institutions like boarding schools as a way of solidifying the power of white elites to identify the needs of the nation's racial minorities and of authorizing coercive interventions in the lives of African and Native Americans based on those presumptions of need. The second is the practice of avoidance, silence, or even concealment that Christian reformers engaged in as they carried out their coercive interventions on behalf of those they deemed less fortunate and in need of cultural transformation, education in citizenship, and training in true religion. And I found these two insights particularly compelling and worthy of further reflection because they describe so well the work of the Christian philanthropist that I have spent the past few years writing about in my book, Holy Humanitarians, Evangelicals, and Global Aid. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that project. So in 1890, just about 25 years after White Horse and Zotam were imprisoned at Fort Marion, and 10 years after General Richard Henry Pratt opened the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, an enterprising evangelical publisher uh, named Louis Klopsch partnered with the popular minister Thomas DeWitt Talmadge, who was the most popular preacher of his time, to purchase a weekly newspaper called the Christian Herald. Their goal was to make this newspaper the most widely read publication in the world and also, quote, a medium of American bounty to the needy throughout the world. 
Over the next several decades, they made great progress towards these aims. By the turn of the 20th century, the Christian Herald had garnered almost a quarter million subscribers, which was nearly double the amount of its closest competitor among religious periodicals. And these readers came from all across the United States and every Protestant denomination. And they proved quite eager to participate in the projects of evangelical benevolence that Klopsch and Talmadge promoted through their newspaper. Shortly after acquiring the publication, the editors started to solicit their sus subscribers' support for a wide range of charitable enterprises by barraging readers with reports of humanitarian crises occurring around the globe, um, as well as on American soil. Soon, the publicist moved beyond merely chronicling catastrophes to actively spearheading relief efforts by collecting contributions and taking a direct role in distributing aid. So in the spring of 1892, the Christian Harris Herald publicized its first official campaign to succor the afflicted, a food fund to help famishing peasants in Russia. Over the next several years, Talmadge and Klopsch organized many more efforts to alleviate suffering of all sorts, from providing relief for impoverished families in New York City following the financial depression of 1893, to soliciting assistance for Armenians displaced by political violence in the Ottoman Empire, to partnering with the federal government to send aid to starving Cubans. From 1897 through the turn of the 20th century and beyond, they engaged in massive fundraising efforts to provide for victims of famine, earthquake, warfare, and flood in India, China, Scandinavia, Macedonia, Japan, Italy, and Mexico. At the same time, they offered ongoing support for ministries to the poor and needy throughout the United States. By the time Klopsch died in 1910, the Christian Herald subscribers had donated over $3.3 million to domestic and international humanitarian causes. This is equivalent to about $82.4 million in today's terms. Only the American Red Cross, which was a fledgling agency at the time but became a quasi-governmental agency in 1900 with congressional support, rivaled the Christian Herald's achievements as a relief agency. No other grassroots charitable organization religious or secular, came remotely close. As this image from a June 1901 Christian Herald cover shows, this remarkable record of evangelical benevolence was premised on the logic of presumed racialized need that both Susan Ryan and Jennifer Graber have described. Like the benevolent crusaders of the 1790s to 1830s that Ryan studies, or the post-Civil War Christian reformers that Graeber examines, the evangelical humanitarians associated with the Christian Herald were, in Jennifer's terms, busy performing a remarkable amount of public service to address the great need they saw around them. Not only among Native and African Americans who required their help through institutions like the Carlisle School, which Klopsch and Talmadge and Christian Herald readers actively promoted. In fact, the picture that um, Jennifer showed is also published in the newspaper. Um, but also among non-Protestant immigrants who were arriving in record numbers in the latter decades of the late 19th century, 
symbolized here in the image of the young girl on the bottom right, as well as among the needy of what they called every tribe and nation, most of whom, as the image shows, were black and brown people who benefited from the largesse of the title of this image is America, the Almoner of the World. As I discuss in Holy Humanitarians, the logic of Christian benevolence encouraged American evangelicals to extend their reach around the world to help people suffering as the result of natural disasters like hurricanes or earthquakes, but also as the result of other kinds of perceived calamities, such as the political oppression of Spanish rule in the Philippines that had supposedly left the population bereft of opportunities to develop the capacity for self-government and therefore in need of American tutelage and oversight before achieving independence. Or the spiritual bondage of Hinduism that left, quote, the dusky natives of India, and especially Indian women, quote, again, in heathen darkness, entirely ignorant and enslaved to idolatry and therefore in need of the intervention of American missionary reformers to liberate them from their backward way of life. In the conclusion to my book, I trace out how the logic of Christian benevolence has provided ongoing support for the expansion of American empire across the continent and around the globe from the late 19th century through the 20th century to the Iraq war and beyond. So because this ethic of coercive intervention on behalf of those in need has provided such a powerful analytical framework for my own study, I want to ask those gathered here whether you also find it a persuasive lens for your own <coughs> historical research on or personal experience of mass incarceration. If the logic of Christian benevolence has and presumed racialized need have not been the driving forces in the development or administration of American prisons in the contemporary US, I wonder what other ethics or presumptions we would find salient. And I was really struck by this last night with the logic of Christian obedience being another one. So there may be more that we can collect together as we try to excavate the historical roots and um, the Christian theologies that support this um, process. So I ask also these questions about the ongoing influence of the logic of Christian benevolence in part because of my issue with my interest in the second issue that Jennifer's presentation raised for me and that is the practices of avoidance, silence and concealment that Christian reformers engaged in as they carried out their coercive interventions on behalf of those they deem less fortunate and in need of their help. For also, in my research on holy humanitarians, I found that the ethic of Christian benevolence and the practice of silence about the exercise of coercive force were closely linked, although perhaps not in precisely the same ways that they seem to have been for visitors to Fort Marion like Lizzie Champney and Harriet Beecher Stowe. During the 1890s and early decades of the 20th century, just as the Christian Herald was striving to demonstrate through its relief campaigns the, quote, worldwide charity of Christian America to the needy and oppressed of every nation, racial minorities within the United States itself, African, Asian, and Native Americans, as well as immigrants whose status as white was in question, faced increasingly overt violence and systemic oppression in both legal and extrajudicial forms. 
In these years, many Southern blacks struggled under oppressive sharecropping arrangements, decreasing access to education of any kind, and increasingly restrictive Jim Crow laws that effectively excluded them from voting and almost all other forms of civic participation while also borrowing them from public transportation, meeting places, and health services. Physical violence against African Americans became commonplace, with lynching reaching an all-time high in 1892. Asian Americans were also victims of physical violence and legal exclusions with the passage and reaffirmations of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And at the same time, Native Americans were grappling with the implementation of the Dawes Act of 1887 and Curtis Act of 1898, which authorized the federal government to divide Indian lands throughout much of the West into individual allotments, devastating um, the social structure of Native communities and resulting throughout the 1890s in Native people losing control over nearly half of the territory that they held to that point. So despite their concern for the suffering of needy and oppressed people around the world, the evangelical publishers of the Christian Herald made very little mention of the systemic violence and legalized discrimination against the nation's own racial minorities. In all their years at the helm of the Christian Herald, Klopsch and Talmadge remained entirely mute on the epidemic of lynching or the passage of laws upholding segregation. And while at first I wondered about this reticence, I eventually came to see that the logic of Christian benevolence required and perhaps even produced this silence. In order to maintain the United States reputation as the almoner of the world, divinely ordained and exceptionally capable of uplifting the drowned trodden, liberating the captives and relieving the afflicted, it became necessary to ignore and perhaps even to conceal the increasingly widespread use of coercive force against non-white Americans. And so my second question for discussion is to what extent are the practices of avoidance, silence, and concealment still at work among contemporary Christian reformers? In The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander raises the problem of awareness as a major impediment to activism arguing that many Americans remain blind to the scale and scope of violence and legalized discrimination exercised against communities of color throughout the United States criminal justice system. And her book, she wrote, quote, tells a truth our nation has been reluctant to face about the development of a racial caste system that was largely invisible and well disguised, even to someone like herself who spent an entire career advocating for social justice. So if one of the goals of the conference is to challenge these longstanding practices of avoidance, silence, or concealment, to make visible what we have overlooked or obscured, to speak into the silences, this is one way forward, and it seems like a good time for me to stop talking. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Um, I want to begin by also um, expressing my gratitude to both Michelle and Matt um, for uh, convening such a wonderful conference. Um, and I want to thank Jennifer and Heather for really wonderful questions and presentations and, and um, stellar research on the kind of, and demonstration of the type of historical projects that are possible. Um, what I take to be part of what 
um, Jennifer's presentation offers to us some of the key questions and insights for thinking about the history of mass inca incarceration are, first of all, um, the location of prison reform within the age of benevolence itself and the frenzy or the busyness of benevolent projects, including those of education, um, asylums, and poverty relief as well. The second is the formation of benevolent citizenship, drawing on Susan Ryan's work. And here, the importance of thinking about the enduring ties of white benefactors to their racialized others um, is also part of how we can think about the constitution of liberal whiteness, too. Um, third, how Christian reformers are understanding need in various historical moments and how that um, is coalescing with terms of race that is perpetuating our particular moment of the racialization of incarceration, as well as, and this is what I will talk about, other forms of carceral institutions and practices, such as schools and almshouses. And then finally, the question of the problem of understanding need itself. Who authorizes need? How is that constructed? Um, and in need of what? Um, who is compelled to address this need? And what does history tell us about the power-laden relationship of benefactors to their needy? So my research and interests are in liberal benevolence and humanitarian emotion. With a dissertation on one of the tourists of Graeber's prison, <laughs> um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, and her social reform networks and literature. While Harriet Beecher Stowe is a very fascinating window on how the racialization of need is marshaled to move people toward um, feeling right and sympathetic identification, um, part of this racialization for Stowe is the constitution of what I have um, attempted to term as the white moral imagination, drawing on the white literary imagination that Toni Morrison talks about mm -hmm. in Playing in the Dark. Um, I want to, for this response though, I want to instead respond to analogous institutions and discourses invested in the identification, not just of need, but of the worthiness of that need. Um, and here I am particularly interested in my future research of looking at the distinction of the language of worthy and unworthy poor. And the extension of the carceral system apparatus and techniques to the management of the poor. Um, my response will be by way of story um, and a reflective moment of my own in terms of the histories I'm interested in and the location of, my, of generations of my family within them. These are sort of part of the archival moments that we as academics have to take a moment to give ourselves permission to think about and reflect upon, um, reminding us of our own humanity and location mm -hmm. in our worlds. So I have long been interested in institutions of welfare and reform. I grew up in a family marked by the many particular institutions that both the worthy and unworthy poor must navigate. To this day, there are still ways in which navigating the bureaucracies of public welfare services on behalf of my family feels more comfortable than figuring out the bureaucracies of academia. <laughs> <laughs> my grandmother was raised in an orphanage um, a biological uncle of mine was adopted out. An older cousin was institutionalized after suffering 
life-altering disabilities from spinal meningitis, and no one in my family could care for him. Members of my family have spent time in county jails, state, and federal penitentiaries, including one, a very dear aunt of mine, who inspired me to love writing and sketching through our pen pal exchange. State welfare services, church food banks, utility assistant programs, sub for Santa and the awful clothes that they deliver to children. <laughs> Public housing and the kindness of coworkers, friends and neighbors have sustained my family from paycheck to paycheck and crisis to crisis with unquestioned gratitude despite the ambivalent concerns and forms of critique that I learned from my family in terms of questioning structures of reporting, confessing, and the racial and class coding of poverty, including the term white trash. In 2001, during my doctoral program here, I moved from Davis Square in Somerville to North Cambridge. A block away from my apartment was the International School of Boston, featured here. It's an elite French-English bilingual private school that celebrates cultivating children who will, quote, see things differently, and quote, meet the world, quote, cultivate confident curiosity, quote, have doors open to universities around the world, and finally, to be a school that exists just for your child. <laughs> so what do these claims have to do with the history of incarceration and its roots with liberal benevolence? And what do these claims have to do with my own positionality as a young scholar? Like most of us transplants in New England who are enchanted by the deep history of its institutions and buildings, I began exploring and wondered what the history of this particular building in my neighborhood was. On a walk one day, I noticed this sign. Sorry, it's not very good. I noticed this sign. Um, in front of the building, describing it as a site of the historic Cambridge Poor Farm. The sign describes the history of the Poor Farm as a place for, quote, orphans, paupers, the elderly, and insane. The building was completed in 1851 and resides on, resided on 32 acres of farming land, um, and it owes itself to one of the busy pioneering Protestant prison reformers that Jennifer treats in her book, the Reverend Lewis Wright. He's a Congregationalist minister from Boston who founded the, um, the uh, Prison Disciplinary Society of Boston. Um, Wright, along with Gridley Bryant, designed the new Cambridge almhouse for the city of Cambridge. Um, the other building that they designed, which many of you may be a little bit more familiar with, is the Charles Street Jail, which is now the mm -hmm. posh Liberty Hotel um, downtown. Um, part of the design of this building was to laud progressive achievements in new innovations of separate wings, common areas, and the centrality of efficient work, and the language of efficiency seems to pervade much of this conversation, um, and gospel education. Here, the worthy poor, or as the Cambridge Chronicle called them in the feature of the opening of the new almshouse, the inmates of Poverty Plain, 
um, could be contained and reformed. Delinquents, whether by way of reformable criminality, disability, age, and the worthy poor, or those who could, could not sustain themselves, were assigned residency at the poor farm. So this is a history that haunts our present. Mm -hmm. And I, the question I want to present to us in our conversation is what histories haunt our present? How do we negotiate them? It, whether it's in the traces of buildings, in the pages of historical texts, um, in the spaces that take on new meaning and new education. How does liberal humanitarian zeal haunt these spaces? Where children are today promised child-centered cosmopolitan education, there is also a history of a poor farm, an almshouse, designed by reformers and located on the outskirts of the growing town of Cambridge and downwind of the stench of the tanneries that, mm -hmm. for those of you who live around here know that exist in the sort of between Davis Square and North Cambridge, used to exist. I found myself and still find myself wondering how to straddle this space as I navigate my own promising education from Harvard with the recognition that the people I call family would have belonged here at the poor farm, not the modern day elite private school iteration of the building. I want to close with a quote from the Cambridge Chronicle um, in 1851 when they are celebrating the opening of this new building. Quote, the city of Cambridge deserves infinite credit for its great liberality and intelligence mm -hmm. in erecting such an edifice. And it can without presumption take to itself the honor of having within its borders one of the best alms houses in the country, a distinction more to be envied than its fine churches, public buildings, or even its world-renowned Harvard University. Thank you to all three of you for giving us such a, a rich archive of history. And We've run a little bit over, but we've made the executive decision to run the session until 10.30. So that gives us about 12 minutes or so for questions. So I'll invite you all to, to engage the conversation and Jen is going to take your questions. And then, But you can ask questions to anyone and hopefully we'll get a conversation going. Uh, thank you for the interesting talks. Um, this may bridge uh, this session with the session that's following. So maybe I'm anticipating things, but what was struck me was how so much of this early theory of containment or, or incarceration was framed in, uh, obviously, in, uh, in a philanthropic uh, uh, terms. And I'm wondering where, so basically, inculcating a North European value system in people of African descent or indigenous Americans. What, what I hear today in the discussion, general discussion about incarceration is extremely punitive. Mm -hmm. So you know, old enough to do the crime, commit the crime, old enough to do the time, that kind of stuff. And none of this is coming out. I mean, I, I grant you all this ideology and all of this uh, do-goodism was can't. But 
now it's explicit. I mean, these people deserve to be punished. They deserve to be incarcerated. Uh, and I'm just wondering where that transition took place. It didn't take place in your talks, so I don't know where it's going to come into the discussion. I can tell you that um, they are responding. In the 1790s, with the first experiments in reformative incarceration, they are responding to a previous regime of corporal punishment capital punishment, and so their sense is that they are turning away from punitive forms. Um, and they're, and they, they are turning away from that, um, and that's part of the celebration of American liberal possibility. Um, uh, because those ideas had also circulated in Europe, but no one had really implemented them. So there was this sense that we can make this turn now, um, and because we have this like new political experiment. So they saw themselves as directly responding to and not punitive, which I think is part of why they were unable to see the coercion present, because they were so fixated on spectacular coer public coercion in the past. So uh, I, I was also struck, as uh, was mentioned during the panels, of like how, how closely this aligned with Professor Jennings' comments last night about, yeah. about place and space, obedience, need, and the racialization of these things. One thing that we heard from Professor Jennings last night was sort of a, uh, a uh, sort of resources within the theological tradition which spoke back against this sort of racialization of obedience. I, I want to ask you, uh, was, this, w was this ubiquitous or universal in 19th century Christianity? Um, and maybe not just in, in white Christianity, but just are, are, there, are there other voices? Are there, are, there, are there people talking about these containment practices in more critical ways? Are there anyone who's seeing, seeing this as a continuation or perpetuation or transformation of punishment rather than a response to it, just out of kind of hopeful curiosity? <laughs> <laughs> there is a small hopeful strain, but I think it has real limits. Um, Several of the earliest experiments with reformative incarceration allowed for no corporal punishment whatsoever. Um, and that lasted for about two decades. Um, and then New York State actually re-implemented the use of whipping uh, in the institution in uh, New York City and then the new institution in, at Auburn, which is still operating today. Um, and I would say Quakers especially objected very strongly um, to the use of whipping, um, but they also allowed for, but they, so they objected to whipping Yes. Right, hope. Um, but they actually, there were other kinds of bodily containment um, and coercion that they um, were willing to countenance, uh, including in, place, in, in Pennsylvania. There were these mouth gags that were used, certain kinds of things that moved the arms behind the back. Um, water, like waterboarding <laughs> happens here first in prisons. Um, I know some people trace it to the invasion of the Philippines, but we were practicing it here um, in New York City. Um, so, like, so there are, so, so I think in some ways there's like symbolic um, physical punishment, right? Whipping kind of symbolized everything bad, hanging symbolized everything bad, and that then allowed for not maybe seeing um, the problems with waterboarding. I can say, um, maybe not in relation necessarily to the, the institution of the prison, but there were definitely were um, those who spoke out against lynching from the Christian tradition, or even against the sort of America, the almoner of the world idea. So we could look to um, 
David Walker's appeal, right? The critique of the American humanitarian tradition from, um, the, or Ida B. Wells, the same thing. So, and then, so part of when I had this question, like why is there nothing in the Christian Herald about this crisis? I started to look around, one person said, well, nobody was talking about it, which is not true. I mean, that's mm -hmm. also not true even among, um, you know, white Protestants at the time. So then what is it about this kind of logic that, that made concealment possible and, or necessary in one context but not another? Um, and then the other place where I have found sort of pushback to the idea of racialized need is among missionaries who were trying to establish fellowship with, with the communities in which they lived. And so they were, on the one hand, especially in the Indian famines, desperate for help to feed people who were coming to their mission statements, but really uncomfortable with the sort of iconography of famine that developed in the Christian Herald, the photographs of people in need, and were much more apt to send home pictures of uh, missionary, like work, people doing work um, which is also another kind of logic, right? Yeah. But it's, so it's not that it completely escapes yeah. the practices, but it was sort of a press back against the idea that somehow America, the almoner of the world, is the necessary caretaker of people who don't have any agency. I'll so. also say no one objects to the prison. Mm -hmm. No one. And Foucault, you know, has observed this long ago, um, that once the prison is there, our mind is colonized by it. No one says, this experiment is not working. Let's stop and do something else. It's always a movement to reform the institution, never to abolish it. Hi, um, Jackie Lindsay. I found last night's um, presentation in your own fascinating, and there's just this there's, there's a set of questions that are swirling for me behind the history you're talking about. And so one of those questions, or, or, or an observation is, um, as you're describing, especially you, Heather, um, it sounds as if one of the greatest benefits of this regime is that people get a chance to feel good about themselves. They get a chance to feel superior, but also good about themselves. And the, the, so what keeps coming up for me is, where does the need for racialized need come from? Mm. And when you say, Jennifer, no one objected to the prison, um, I keep wanting us to have this discussion in a cross-cultural context to say, are there any societies that have objected to the prison? Mm. Are there, um, there's some kind of impulse here that we're, everything you're talking about may be accurate, but there's some, something that seems to be happening prior to it that's feeding it that I'm very curious about. Where does that come from? And I, the last thing I want to say, Heather, you just said something that I was feeling last night, which is, as an African American, in my family and in my communities, there was always um, 
support for our being aware. So as I was listening to the obedience-disobedience dichotomy, I was feeling, I didn't grow up with that. I mean, in my family and culture, I grew up with supporting me to be aware that that existed, but supporting me to develop agency. Mm -hmm. So if we're gonna talk about need, because a lot of what you're describing feels like it's very endemic to Western culture, and there must have been something in African-American culture, maybe out of need, just even to survive, where there was a cultivation of awareness of who we are, our strengths, our that this is how we were being defined was not who we are. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, I don't know whether it's a cross-cultural frame that's needed, uh, something going back earlier to say, where does the need to um, racialize, and uh, just not even just racialize, but other, can we could ask the question going forward, can we imagine a society that doesn't assume prison is needed. But I'm also curious about history. Have there been societies where that wasn't the assumption? And what was it going on in Western society that presumed the need for that? Well, those are a set of huge questions. Yeah. And I, I actually originally thought that Amy might be best equipped not to put you on the spot to answer it, but to, because you're really thinking about the cultivation of certain kinds of sentiments, right? Mm -hmm. How do we come to have? I mean, my quick answer would be that um, the need for the reformers is a need that arises out of fear. I mean, to link it to last night, that there's fear about an ex the American experiment. There's fear about losing power. There's, I mean, in my context in particular, there's a lot of fear that what had been white Christian America and these kinds of assumptions are being challenged on many fronts. So part of the need to sort of maintain this power comes out of a sense that somehow it's being challenged and the, and it's slipping away. And I can, in my mind, I'm immediately making an analogy to our present political moment, right? Mm -hmm. But but that doesn't get really at fully what you're asking about. I don't know if you want to yeah. say anything, but. I can, I can say, I don't know if this is on. Um, there we go. Mm -hmm. I can say a few things, and I'll, um, I'll actually invoke Harriet Beecher Stowe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she, soon after the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin, during her first um, European visit, she, one of the European handlers um, of her visit was uh, Lord Shaftesbury, um, mm -hmm. and he was a very, very avid, Dean Hempton and I have had a conversation about this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was a very, very avid um, millennialist, and one of the com dinner conversations that Harriet Beecher Stowe and her brother Charles Stowe asked, because the Beechers were also, of course, um, very strongly committed to the eminent return of Christ mm -hmm. and part of doing social work was to bring that return sooner. And many of these um, reformers are very much caught up in that vision, that historical vision. Uh, what they asked Lord Shaftesbury during that dinner is, do you, essentially they asked, do you get slack in, in your British context for promoting your millennial vision because we do in the United States. People don't see millennialists as social reformers. 
And they marveled at the way Lord Shaftesbury responded by saying that there was no other way to do social reform work except by understanding that the imminent return of Christ was nigh. So part of my answer to that is that cultivating right feelings or thinking about what is it that is formulating these categories of needs are coming from very deep, can be coming also from very deep theological and historical visions that people have in terms of what is the progress of the nation, what is the progress of, of a larger world view. So part of maybe the answer to that question, the constructive answer, is to think about that underlying cultural and theological language. Mm. Okay. All right, we've run out of time. Thank you again. Mm -hmm.